Thanks for joining us today at the Vine Church. We're one church with two locations and reaching around the world with the help of our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ. If you'd like to partner with us in doing that, you can share this service with others and give by clicking the link below. For now, prepare your heart for some incredible worship and an inspiring message. There was a moment when the lights went out When death had claimed its victory The king of love had given up his life darkest day in history they're on the cross they made for sinners for every curse his blood atoned one final breath and it was finished but it's not the end we could have known for the earth began to shake and the veil was torn what sacrifice was made as the heavens roared
Happy Easter. Uh, in ancient days, a pastor would greet the people by saying, he is risen indeed, or he is risen, and then they would respond with, he is risen indeed. I kind of spoiled that moment. Um, but uh, so let, let's go back old school. He is risen. And it is exciting to be with you here on Easter Sunday where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For those of you that I haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is David Walters and I have the honor of being one of the pastors here at the Vine Church and an honor to kick off a three-week series called Unshakable. If you are a veteran of the faith. That means that you grew up in church, you're at church every Sunday, you're gonna love this series because it's gonna give you a bunch of information that will be helpful for you to have an unshakable faith that maybe you share with other people. If you are brand new to the church, welcome. We are so glad that you're here. If you are kind of exploring maybe this Jesus guy or maybe church or maybe faith, this is a great series for you because maybe some of the questions that you've had will be answered through this series. Um, Easter can be kind of confusing. Um, and, and, and right off the top, let's just address one of the most confusing things about Easter, and that is Easter candy, specifically chocolate eggs, okay? There should be no confusion about this. How many of you would say that the best kind of chocolate eggs are filled with peanut butter? Yeah. And how many of you need Jesus and you would say, nope, nope, the white and the yellow cream filling from a Cadbury egg? Anybody? Only one. Okay, I see that hand. I see that hand. All right, all right, yeah. Um, we have people to pray with you after the service is over, yeah. Uh, we clear up confusion on that. We clear up confusion about clothing. A lot of people are like, David, you're dressed up for Easter. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. There are family photos later. That's the only reason I'm dressed up. Um, yeah, I mean, and this was a really confusing thing. On Thursday, Liz and I, we're always the like, last to have to go get the outfit stuff some reason we started with our like 11 year old daughter and her outfit. And then we tried to like match together like pieces of that outfit. By the way, when did mustard yellow become like such a fashionable thing on Easter like this year? Anyway, so, um, so we're trying to match things. So Liz and I, we go out on a date. Liz is my wife, for those of you that don't know. Uh, we got on a date night on Thursday for three hours and we went shopping. That sounds like fun. Anyway, and, um, and, and, and here's what's confusing. We walked into Nordstrom Rack. It took me 15 minutes to find a $19 tie and some socks to match my tie, thank you, that also matches my son, who's 13, his shirt. And I was like, 15 minutes, done and done. Liz got nothing. Then we go for three more hours, three hours through every department store in the mall of Georgia. 
And she's still got nothing. Like, how is that even humanly possible? I don't know. That's confusing. That is confusing. Uh, but we make a big deal out of clothing on Easter. That can be confusing when it comes to the meaning of Easter. And then um, there, there is a lot of uncertainty when it comes to Easter because of all the stuff that happens at Easter time. Um, we've got four people that are getting baptized at the end of today's service. That's going to be awesome. And uh, so we can celebrate that. And just so happens this year, it's the first year this has ever happened at, at the Vine. All of them are, are children. And so I love to meet with all of our kids that are getting baptized because I want to make sure they understand, you know, that baptism, first and foremost, is a symbol of God's love for us. And then secondly, it's a symbol of our love for God. And so we want to talk through that. And sometimes you get some pretty interesting answers about what Easter is when you ask kids a question. And one kid, he's about 10 years old, I said, what is Easter? And he thought for a second, he kind of had a puzzled look on his face and he said, I think it's when the Easter bunny came out of the tomb and if he sees his shadow, he lays some eggs and there's six more weeks of winter. Like, I don't, <laughs> so, you know, so sometimes there's confusion. As a, that was a joke, people. Y'all can laugh. Like, yeah. Like, um, it, sometimes there's confusion about the meaning of Easter. And I think sometimes there's confusion about this whole thing that we call faith, this whole thing that, that relates to Jesus Christ maybe even confusion about Jesus Christ. I remember, um, it was about a year ago, after one of our services, this young woman who had been att attending our church every week, um, she came up excitedly after service. She came up, her mother had come to church with her and her mother had never been to our church. And so she was like super pumped to introduce me to her mom. And she was like, hey, David, this is my mom. This is my mom's first time. And I was like, hey, thanks for coming. Um, how was it today? And she goes, well, it's all fake. And I was like, well, welcome to church. Okay, um, <laughs> glad to have you here. Um, and, and so I said, wait, wait, it's all fake. And she's like, yeah, it's all fake. And I was like, you mean like Jesus claiming that he is the son of God, like, that fake? And she goes, no, Jesus wasn't even real. And I was like, hold up. I was like, I was trying to think like, how do I respond pastorally, but not like insult a person? You know? So it was like, I was like, are you, are you kidding? And she was like, no. And so we went back and forth. I was like, well, he was real. And she was like, no, he's not. And I was like, yeah, he is. And she was like, no, he's not. And I was like, no, I know. I know. Yeah, he is. You know? And I was like, no, 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 no. You know, I was like, I mean, I was like going back and forth trying to like convince this woman that Jesus was real. And the reality is that there is no historical debate that Jesus was real, that Jesus was real. But there are some things maybe that were in question about Jesus, specifically his resurrection. And so today, what I wanna do for you is I wanna give you four pieces of evidence that convince us that the resurrection is real. And then if the resurrection is real, which hopefully you'll be convinced that it is, then four experiences that we can have because of that that will change the reality of our lives forever for the better. And so if you've brought your, your, your Bibles or you've got a Bible app, I want to invite you to go with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew, um, his, he, has a, he had an old name. It was Levi. He was a tax collector who ended up writing down the, the events of Jesus's life. I mean, you know that the only thing that could change a tax collector's life would be a, a resurrection of a dead person coming back to life. That was another joke since we're on the tail end of tax tax week. Anyway, so this is Matthew's account of Jesus's life, his teaching, his death, and then his resurrection it comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses eight through 10. Hey, y'all been sitting long enough. Why don't y'all stand up like the old church would do? Stand up out of reverence, they say, for the scriptures and listen to these words that were written by Matthew about Jesus's resurrection. Now, after the Sabbath, that was sundown on Saturday, 
Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has what church? He has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great what church? Joy. And ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Uh, In the ancient church, they would say, this is the word of God for the people of God. And then they would respond, thanks be to God. So this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Yeah, so four evidences of the resurrection. Four evidence of the resurrection. The first one is that in order to have a, a resurrection, you gotta have a death. So in order to have a resurrection, you have to have evidence of a death. And in this case, it's a evidence of an execution known as a crucifixion. And what's really crazy about the crucifixion is that this was prophesied about 500 years, approximately 500 years before, before crucifixion even existed. So, the, so God knew what was about to happen to his Messiah or to the Savior of the world, but before it was even invented on earth. And, and the form of, of execution known as crucifixion has like three stages to it. And to be historically accurate, all three stages need to be accounted for. The first stage of crucifixion was actually a flogging or a scourging. And this would take place through this thing that they call a cat of nine tails. And, and basically what this was, was a whip that at the end of it, it had strands of leather that had pieces of bone and glass embedded into it. And so they would strike a criminal who, who was condemned for crucifixion and, and they would do it 39 times because the 40th time could, could kill a person. And so as if 39 times was not enough, Then what they would do is they would take nails and they would drive that into the wrist right below what we would call the palm of the hand, right into the wrist, onto a wooden cross. They would drive uh, nails into feet so that a criminal or those condemned to die could die either through uh, bleeding out or through suffocation. Because every time that a person on a cross would breathe out, it would constrict a little bit more upon them. The weight would bring down and eventually they would die by suffocation. Then the third stage was to confirm that death through jabbing a spear through the side of a person, sometimes into the heart. And and what we know about Jesus's resurrection is that first he was executed by crucifixion and all three of those stages were confirmed. All three of those stages were confirmed. Not only that, uh, but we're lucky, if we can go back to ancient history, we're lucky if we can get more than two sources on any ancient piece of history. And we've got over 10 sources that confirm and attest to the crucifixion of Jesus. It it starts with our, our, our gospel stories or what we call the stories of the good news that are in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we've got Peter and Paul, six people who have in the Bible attested to the execution of Jesus. And some of you are thinking, well, that's great. Prove, prove the execution of Jesus through the Bible. Um, but what about 
stuff outside the Bible. Well, I'm glad you asked. Thanks for asking. Um, there are a number of sources outside the Bible that affirm the execution of Jesus. One of those was Josephus. He was a Jewish historian, but he worked for Rome. Uh, Tacitus, he was a Roman historian who worked for Rome. Um, Lucian, who was a Syrian historian, wrote about the crucifixion of Jesus. And then Mara Bar Serapoen um, is a Stoic philosopher and a, a Stoic and a Roman philosopher who also wrote about the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of commentary on the Old Testament, actually includes uh, Jesus's execution. And so you've got all kinds of evidence from people of faith, both Jewish faith and Christian faith, who, who would say that Jesus was crucified. But here's to me the most compelling evidence that there was an execution of Jesus. All modern day historians affirm that there was a crucifixion of Jesus. Even those who don't believe in God, even those who don't believe in God, in fact, kind of the lead atheist historian, his name's Gerd Ludemann, he wrote this, Jesus's death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Even people who don't believe in God know that Jesus died on the cross. We can have confidence in the resurrection because of the execution of Jesus. That's the first evidence that we have for the resurrection. The second evidence that we have for the resurrection is the early accounts of Jesus. If you were to study history, it's different than science. You can't go back in time and, and with scientific method, like confirm history. So you have to confirm it through other sources. What you try to do is get the earliest accounts possible of a person's life or the events of their life. Um, anybody question Alexander the Great's existence in history? The earliest sources that we have accounting for his life didn't come until 400 years after his life. And yet none of us would debate that Alexander the Great existed and that the events that took place were true and historical. Well, here's what's great about the resurrection of Jesus. We have a creed that was passed around orally because there was an oral tradition where they taught um, 2,000 years ago. This creed began within one to two years and was circulated between um, up to about six years after the resurrection of Jesus. This is something that the apostle Paul refers to in Corinthians 15.3. Uh, We've got those words on the screen. This is Paul. He was uh, a Jewish persecutor of the church until he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And this is what he writes. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was raised from the dead. So what he says that he received this, it would have taken place within one to two years after the resurrection of Jesus. And then he passed on this oral teaching, this account of Jesus's life that took place within one to six years after Jesus's resurrection. Remember, some of our earliest manuscripts are within 400 years of a person's life and we hold that to be historically accurate and true. So here we have a much earlier account of that. Those words that we just read from were written in a book of the Bible called Corinthians. And those were written about 25 years after Jesus's resurrection. So here's what's cool about that. That book of the Bible, as well as a number of books of the Bible, and even the gospel stories that tell us about Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, they were all written within the, the life of the first generation of Christ's followers who could have refuted and could have disputed any of them claiming that it was myth or legend. And it would take two whole generations 
for somebody to report something that would have been inaccurate or viewed as a myth or a legend. And yet we don't have that taking place here because of the historical reality of the resurrection. Um, a couple of other cool things is that we have uh, more writings about Jesus's life, death, and resurrection that aren't included in the Bible that were written during that first generation of Jesus's life. So we've got evidence of the execution. We've got the evidence of the early accounts. There's also the evidence of an empty tomb. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. That's the third evidence that we have. Evidence of an empty tomb. I mean, you can't have a resurrection without an empty tomb, right? Can't have a resurrection without an empty tomb. Um, the tomb that Jesus was placed in was borrowed from a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a very rich Jewish religious leader. In fact, he was a part of the Jerusalem council. And so he was one of the highest ranking Jewish leaders. His tomb was borrowed to put Jesus in. If he wanted to displace a myth or a legend, he could have easily said that was my tomb and Jesus was placed there and he did not come out of it. And yet he never spoke up to refute the resurrection. Not only that, but there's this thing that historians call the Jerusalem factor. The Jerusalem factor is that non-followers and followers of Jesus, and even to this day, 2,000 years later, they know where the empty tomb was located. Those that followed Jesus and didn't follow Jesus know exactly where the empty tomb is located. There's another thing when you study history, it's called the criterion of embarrassment. And that is that if a person reports something that is embarrassing, there's a good likelihood that it's accurate. Because why would you tell anything that was embarrassing if it wasn't true? Y'all know what I'm talking about? You know, when you do those icebreakers at work or in a small group and they go, hey, tell an embarrassing fact, like you're not making up embarrassing stories. And so when people study history, there's a likelihood and inaccuracy to embarrassing things that are reporting. And, and, and women, I don't, I don't want you to get offended in any way but what I'm about to say. The reason that this would have been embarrassing is because of the women's involvement in the story. Did y'all notice who the first people were at the tomb? The women. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and if there was another Mary, I'm sure she would have gone too. You know, but... <laughs> There were a bunch of Marys at the tomb, but there were a bunch of women. And here's what's crazy. This is why it would have been embarrassing because the whole account of the resurrection story came from the first people who went who were women whose testimony was not even credible in court. Women could not testify in court 2,000 years ago. So if you were writing this story and just making up a story, the last thing that you would wanna do is say, women showed up at the tomb first. Women showed up at the tomb first. You had an enemy attestation. Uh, that basically means that the enemies of Jesus and Jesus followers could have done a number of things to try to debunk this story of the resurrection. Um, but what wouldn't make sense is for the Roman government who occupied um, Israel at that time to, to steal Jesus's body. It wouldn't make sense because it would validate Jesus's claims, who by the way said that he was the son of God. Roman emperors thought that they were the sons of God. They had no proof. They had no validity to that. They could not perform any miracles or show any signs or wonders that they were, but they would claim that they were the son of God. And so while um, Israel was under Jewish um, occupation or R Roman occupation, um, anything that threatened the emperor, they would try to dismiss. 
So if you had a guy who said that he's the son of God, and you had a guy who said that he was going to die and then come back from the dead, and, um, and the proof of that would be an empty tomb, why would you take Jesus's body? The enemies wouldn't want to do that. The Jewish leaders wouldn't want to do that for the same reasons. They thought Jesus was a heretic. Claiming that he was the son of God was blasphemy to them. And so for them to steal the bodies wouldn't make sense, or the body of Jesus wouldn't make sense because that would validate Jesus's claim. It wouldn't make sense that Jesus's followers would steal the body. They're scared of their life. These bold women are marching to the tomb and the men are back in a house bunkered down with the doors locked because they were afraid the Roman government was gonna come and arrest them too. So they were scared out of their mind. It wouldn't make sense because they would have been arrested. They would have been locked up and perhaps crucified themselves. The only logical explanation was that there was an empty tomb. And the one explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus is alive. And then the final piece of evidence is eyewitnesses. I mean, when you have enough eyewitnesses, you go, I think that happened, even though you might not have been there and maybe you haven't seen it. When you have enough eyewitnesses, you can believe something is a reality. And Jesus showed up to over 515 eyewitnesses of the resurrection. It's accounted for over nine different times in the Bible and the gospel stories. In the book of Acts, which is kind of a sequel to the book of Luke, when we talk about the earliest days of the church, on the first day that the church ever met, there was a proclamation about Jesus and that this was a fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy, that he died and he came back from the dead. And 3,000 people gave their lives to this new thing, who, by the way, were within 50 days of the resurrection of Jesus. They believed within 50 days that Jesus came back from the dead. And then one of the sources for historical proof is to go back to, to those who were connected directly to the first generation of those who observed things. And, and we've got two specific church leaders who record and, and write about the resurrection of Jesus because they learned from Jesus' original followers. One of them, his name was Clement, and he learned from Peter, who was one of the 12, original 12 followers of Jesus, and he wrote about the resurrection of Jesus. There was a guy named Polycarp. Parents, if you got a kid and you're thinking about names, just don't go with Polycarp. But anyway, Polycarp, he studied under this guy named John, who was one of the original followers of Jesus. And in his writing, Polycarp wrote about the resurrection of Jesus five times. We have execution, we have early accounts, we have an empty tomb, and we have eyewitnesses all saying and all proving that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a real historical figure, died and came back from the dead. And if a guy dies and comes back from the dead and he claims that he is the son of God and he claimed that he would die and come back from the dead and he claimed that you and I could have a different life, then my question for you is, what will you do with the real evidence that Jesus really came back from the dead? What will you do with the evidence that Jesus came back from the dead? I want to uh, offer to you four responses or four experiences that we can have really quickly um, from the proof that Jesus did in fact come back from the dead. The first one 
is eternal life. The first experience that we can have based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that we can have eternal life. Uh, the Bible tells us in John three sixteen. it's one of the most quoted, most memorized um, verses in, in all of the Bible, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There is a gift that comes from God's love demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, becoming a substitute of our sin. That when we confess our sins to him and trust in him as the savior of our life, we can experience eternal life. My guess is that if you've been in church on a Sunday, an Easter Sunday before, you've heard that message. And my guess is that most of you know that you can have eternal life in Jesus. But I also guess because I experienced this during my childhood and early, early adulthood, is that the emphasis on eternal life is placed on what happens after earth. When we die, that we have the assurance of going on to heaven so we can live with God eternally there. But Jesus, more than wanting us to get into heaven, wanted heaven to get into us. And eternal life actually begins the moment a person trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. That's when the eternal life begins. It just so happens that it creates a new life in you one that Jesus says is a life filled with abundance. And so Jesus dying on the cross and coming back from the dead allows us, all of us to experience, no matter what we've done and no matter what we, where we have been, an eternal life that begins the moment we trust in him as the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life. That's the first experience, eternal life. The second experience that we can have because of the reality of the resurrection is exceeding joy. We can experience exceeding joy. Did you, notice, did you notice the description of the women after they experienced the resurrection? They went back with fear and great what? Joy. I made you say it. So hopefully you'd remember it when I asked you. They experienced after the resurrection, as they were going back, fear and great joy. Joy is one of those things that is so elusive in life. We wanna have this like constant state of gladness where everything's all good inside of us and we seek it in so many temporary things. We'll seek it in possessions. So we think, hey, if I can just get more stuff, I'll have joy. We seek it in people where, where if we have the right relationship with the right person at the right time, we can experience that gladness. Uh, we, we look for it in popularity. Yeah, if I could just get a couple more likes, couple more friends, couple more shares. If I could just get more popularity, then I will have that. We look for it in power. And so if, if we can be in control, like if we can be in control of, of our relationships and of people, then maybe we'll have that joy. And the reality is that all those are temporary. There's only one per permanent source of joy, and that's Jesus. And that's Jesus. When you know that the resurrection of Jesus is real, you can experience a constant state of gladness in your life. Paul, the guy who was a church persecutor turned church planner and wrote the majority of the New Testament, he said that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. And if the spirit of Jesus lives inside of you and you cultivate a relationship with Jesus, then what's gonna be produced in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. All of the things that are elusive 
and all those things that I mentioned, but are found through a relationship with the resurrected Jesus. The third thing that you can experience is evangelism with confidence. I mean, I was trying to come up with E-words to help you out on Sunday mornings. Yeah, evangelize is like not the word you wanna use on an Easter Sunday morning because evangelize or evangelism has kind of been hijacked by televangelists and people that have kind of like done it wrong or poorly, I should say, maybe not wrong, but poorly, you know? And, and, and here's what evangelism means. It goes back to a Greek word, ouanglion. Everybody say ouanglion. Now, not what you were thinking you were gonna say on Easter morning, right? The, the basic meaning of euanglion or evangelize means to share good news. And what better news than God leaving heaven, coming to earth, dying as a substitute for your sin so that your sins could be placed on him and his right standing with God could be placed on you now and forever. I mean, is there any better good news than that? In fact, it's great news, amen? And actually, it's the best news, amen? And so... Sharing the good news is something that we should be able to do with confidence when we know that the person that we're talking about was real, we know his death was real, and we know his resurrection was real. We can boldly go, which is amazing to me that women showed up to the tomb. This is not coincidence. Because again, as we go back to the criterion of embarrassment, the last people you would want telling about Jesus' resurrection, first of all, was women. And yet they go back with confidence. They go back with confidence because they knew the team was empty. And they had met Jesus on the road going back. They worshiped him. They had that confidence to share the good news. What I love is that the angel didn't say, hey, go back, get dressed up in a white short sleeve shirt with black tie, get on your bicycle and go door to door telling everybody about this. What I love is that the angel said to the women, hey, go back and tell who, your friends. Go back and tell those friends of Jesus that you've been hanging out with for three years. I mean, we should be able to share the good news of Easter, the great news of Easter, the best news of Easter with people that we do life with and to do it with this confidence that we know what we're talking about is unshakable. It's unshakable. And the last thing is that when we know that the resurrection is real, everything changes everything changes. If God can bring dead things to life, nothing is impossible. And if nothing is impossible, that means that anything is possible. If nothing is impossible, that means that anything is possible. And if God can bring a dead person back to life, that means that God can do an amazing work in the impossible situations that you and I face. And so what I know is that marriages can be restored. What I know is that prodigal children can come home. What I know is that people who have been disgraced because of their past can be liberated from that. What I know that people who are addicted to things can be set free. What I know is that if you struggle in a sin, you can be liberated. What I know is that whatever it is that you face, maybe right now or in the future, that's in the category of impossible, that's where God does his greatest work. Nothing's impossible. Anything is possible. And that's what led that guy, Paul, the church persecutor, turned church planner because of a resurrection to Jesus. An encounter with him to write these words in Philippians 4.13. They're my youngest son's favorite words. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The same spirit that brought Jesus back from the dead lives in you. Now, he thinks it means that he's gonna be a professional soccer player. I'm not sure that's what that means. But what I know is that whatever impossibility you're facing means that it is possible because the spirit who brought Jesus back from the dead lives inside of you. I don't know how you came into this place today. Maybe you had some questions. Maybe you had, had some doubts. Maybe you had some skepticism about whether this resurrection was real or not. Hopefully you've got a proof of that beyond the proof that you would ever need. Maybe you walked into this place and you've been, you've been to church, as far as you know, you've been to church every Easter of your life. Maybe you've got some unshakable confidence now with some evidence. Here's what I know. The reality of the resurrection can change your life for the better. I, I remember a, a couple that came to me at the church that I served previous to starting the Vine Church. And uh, they came to me and they asked me to do their wedding. So we were doing some premarital and, and uh, they had to fill out this inventory and each of them filled it out separately. And then we had their responses side by side. And there were di like 10 different categories of life that, that they gave answers to. And, and one of those categories was faith. And, and I noticed that one of them put that they didn't believe in God at all. And then the other person said that their faith was of strong importance to you. And so when they came in, I said, hey, there's two things we really need to talk about because y'all are on different pages here. One is money and um, one is faith. So let's talk about faith first because I think that that's gonna be the foundation for your life and your marriage. I said, um, I noticed that you marked, and that was to the guy, that you marked that you don't believe in God and that you have, uh, your faith is of strong importance to you. I said, can y'all tell me about that? And um, just a couple of weeks earlier, this, this young woman who was sitting in my office had given her life to Jesus Christ at our morning service. Um, so she had come to faith in Jesus Christ, but this guy that she was engaged to he was an atheist, didn't believe in God. And so I said, hey, tell me why you don't believe in God. And he said, well, I don't believe that uh, there's a creator of creation, which if you feel the same way, next week's message will be great for you, by the way. Um, so I said, I said, so you don't believe in creation uh, by a creator? And he said, no. And I said, would you be willing to meet with me for one year, once a week, I said, um, and after that one year, if you're not a believer in God and a follower of Jesus, I'll quit the church. Like, I'll quit my job, go get another job. He was like, that sounds awesome. So I bought him coffee. About six weeks in, as we worked through some of the questions that he had, he ended up giving his, uh, or believing that there was a God. And so then I said, well, hey, now that you believe in God, do you wanna talk about um, the so-called paths that we might take to get to God? Or, or do you wanna just talk about Jesus? And he said, let's just talk about Jesus. So after another couple of weeks, about 12 weeks total, he ends up trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior of his life. And I got to keep my job, which was really awesome. <laughs> like, that's awesome. The best part, the best part of the story is that on their wedding day, I got to baptize them both. That's the difference that the reality of the resurrection can make. You don't have to blindly have faith. You just need to have faith. You don't have to blindly believe. You just have to believe. And belief is when you say, hey, you know what? Even though I wasn't there, I know that this guy, Jesus, was God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. Because of that, when he died, he died as a substitute for the sins of the world and mine. And that through his life, through his resurrection, he offers new life, abundant life, and eternal life. And I want that. And that's what belief is. 
So this morning as we close our time together, I don't know how you came into this place. I don't know what experience you need because of the reality of the resurrection. But I know that there are four of them available and all you've got to do is respond in faith. the mountain I could not climb in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written Jesus Christ my living hope who could imagine so great a mercy what heart could follow such boundless grace the god of ages stepped down from glory my sin and bear my shame the cross has spoken the cross has spoken i am forgiven the king of kings calls me Savior, I'm yours forever, Jesus Christ, my living. Let's sing this together, church. Sing hallelujah, praise the one who set me free.
So Father, here I am. 